Well, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We hope to wrap up today our series on the armor of God, looking at each of the six pieces listed for us here in Ephesians chapter 6, the signature passage in the Bible on spiritual warfare. And this morning, we're going to end with the only offensive weapon that's listed here, the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit. And so just to kind of frame this passage one last time, let's read verses 13 through the end of verse 17. Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Father, we pray this morning that you would allow us to take up this helmet of salvation and this sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Teach us today, God, what this means so that we can both know and understand and use the sword properly in the battles that you've called us to. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, throughout history, people have had a peculiar interest in things that are both dangerous, but also of great comfort to us if used in the right way. Take fire, for example. We have some pyromaniacs in the room, I'm sure, who love to play with the dangerous of fire, but fire is also a great and helpful thing. In fact, if fire is used in the right way, it can help you cook your food which makes uh, steak taste way more uh, pleasurable than eating steak without cooking it, right? So we appreciate fire. When it's controlled, we use it uh, to help us do things like cooking, keeping us warm. It's even used in, a, in, a, in the cars, in the combustion chamber to help propel human beings in their travel, whether it's a car or a jet plane or going into outer space. Another example would be water. Water could be very dangerous in the case of a flood or a hurricane or a tidal wave or a tsunami, but water is also necessary for everyday life. It's what sustains our bodies. It's what we also use to cook and clean and, and to uh, keep our yards alive, right? It's a major uh, thing that's used even in decorating today. Water walls, water fountains. There's the famous World of Color at California Adventure. Uh, water is enjoyed recreationally in swimming pools, all kind of water sports and games, and also just the, the idea of the water parks that we love to visit in the summer. And when you put these two natural resources together, fire and water, you have one of the best inventions of the modern times, and that is a hot shower. How many of you guys appreciate a good hot shower? Now, interestingly enough, the Word of God is referred to in Scripture both as water, wash yourself with the water of the Word, Ephesians 5.26, and as fire, that the Word is like a fire, like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces, Jeremiah. The idea here is this morning, I want to talk to you about the danger and necessity, not of fire and not of water, but the danger and necessity of the usage of the sword, both in times of peace and in times of war. And when you think about the sword, you think about, first, I think just about its sharpness, the idea that it's able to cut. And in a way, we all have swords in our houses, whether it be a knife that you use in the kitchen or a sharp pair of scissors that you use in the home or clippers that you use out in your yard. But I'm talking to you about this morning, that sharp edge of the sword used for cutting. 
It's, it's very important that you understand that it's dangerous, but it's necessary for everyday life. There are many sharp things we use on a daily basis that possess potential for great danger, but also provide the necessity of human life. And without the ability to cut things under control, then people will be unable to build houses for shelter, prepare meals for food, or even undergo a life-saving surgery in the operating room. A sword, a sharp sword, is a good weapon to have in battle. Whether it be the flint knife of the ancient world, or the steel sword of the Roman army, the bayonet attached to the end of the rifle in the American Revolution, or an instrument, any instrument of modern warfare, swords are dangerous but also necessary and, and, and for protection in the day of battle. Without a good sword, you will lose the battle. And without a good sword, you will give in to the enemy's offense. And the idea is that you must use a sword in the spiritual battle that we fight. And your sword must be strong. And your sword must be durable. And your sword must be sharp. And while most of us are not used to wielding battle swords in a theater of war, all of us should be using the sword of the Spirit and the spiritual war that we fight day by day. And the sword of the Spirit is dangerous, but it is also necessary in day-to-day life. But there is one great difference between the material sword used in the physical battle and the spiritual sword used in the spiritual battle. A material sword pierces the body. The Word of God pierces the heart. The more you use a physical sword, the duller it becomes. But the more you use the spiritual sword, the sharper it becomes in being used in your life. A physical sword requires the hand of a soldier. But the sword of the Spirit has its own power, for it is living and active. The physical sword aims to hurt and to kill, while the spiritual sword aims to heal and to give life. The physical sword is manufactured by man, but the spiritual sword is manufactured by God. The physical sword is designed to last a lifetime, but the spiritual sword is designed to last forever. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the danger and the necessity of using the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God, in your life in a way that breaks down the strongholds of this world and that builds up fortresses of faith in your life. And I want to talk to you about using the sword of the Spirit which delivers us from the schemes of the devil and devotes us to obedience in Christ. This morning, let me encourage you to put away every weapon save that the weapon that God has given us, the sword of the Spirit, for it alone is sufficient and capable and able to defend you against any foe. The Word of God alone is what we need. Scriptura, sola scriptura, right? If we're using any other weapon this morning, you will lose the battle, for you will be distracted with weapons that cannot win. But with the sword of Spirit, the sword of the Spirit in your hand, you can win the battle. So we, as we examine this sermon this morning, this idea of the sword of the Spirit being the Word of God, I want to use three major headings there in the outline for you. And if you're taking notes, your first blank there under the first heading says, the way the sword was used in battle. And let's look at the Roman army, if we can, as we've done with each piece of armor, and how it was used in the Roman army. Well, first you need to know that this is the word machaira. The word for sword here is the word machaira. It is a common term used for a large knife 
that was used for many purposes, including carving as well as preparing a sacrifice. And as a weapon, it's referred to as the short sword or sometimes even as a dagger. Now, this is not the broad sword that we talked about last week that was used by the cavalry that would be some three to four feet long and used by the cavalry soldiers to bring down on the head of an oncoming infantry soldier. So the, the, the broadsword had to be used oftentimes by two hands in order to wield it correctly. This shorter sword uh, is a sword that is used in the hand-to-hand combat. This sword, the short sword, would be anywhere from six inches to two feet long, and it was the common foot soldier sword that they would use again in the battle line. And if you were in close proximity to the enemy, it was not the long sword you wanted, for it might be too cumbersome, but it was the short sword that would be most useful to you in the time of battle. This sword was made out of steel. It is a deadly weapon of war. Known by its Latin name, gladius, and sometimes referred to as the Spanish sword, it has a double-edged blade and was two inches wide and, as we've already said, up to two feet long. It was admirably suitable as a cut-and-thrust weapon used for close work. It was placed in a sheath and attached in a girdle high on the right side of the body so that it would clear, be clear of the soldier's bearing left arm with the shield and also be clear of his legs as he's running around to the battle. It is the only offensive weapon of armor mentioned in this passage. There were other offensive weapons of war used by the Roman soldiers. Obviously, they had spears, and some texts would talk about how each soldier would have two javelins in order to throw at oncoming uh, enemies to, to disrupt their formation. And then when they would get in closer, they would use their left hand on the smaller shield and lean in and use their right hand with this machaira, this short sword of two feet long, and go into battle. You need to know this morning that no army can remain on the defensive and expect to win any battle. There must be an offensive threat that the soldiers would mount if they want to defeat the enemy. All defense and no offense means no victory. A soldier must have a sword and he must be able to wield it correctly if he's going to be on the offensive and if he wants to win the victory. And a soldier without a sword is like a soldier without a chance to win. If all an army does is resist the attacks of the enemy, then it will never defeat the enemy. All defense and no offense only postpones the inevitable defeat of battle. Any soldier who aspires to victory must go on the offensive. And ultimately, that battle would be won or lost by the effectiveness of the use of the sword. The same is true in the Christian battle, right? A Christian without a sword is a Christian without a Bible. A Christian without a sword is a Christian who has no offense. A Christian without a sword is is a Christian who is sure to lose in the day of battle. And you must not only possess the sword, but you must be able to wield it strategically, consistently, and accurately. You must remove it from its sheath. You must grip the sword in your hand, and you must thrust it into the gut of the enemy if you want to win 
the battle that God has for you. And so let's take a look, if we can, a little bit more information here about how the sword is used in the Old Testament. I'm not going to read all of these passages, but basically the word sword is used over 400 times in the Old Testament. It translates four different Hebrew words, and it's used in passages such as in that Genesis 3 passage, how once Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, you remember there was a cherubim and a flaming sword used to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden so they couldn't return. It's used by Balaam in the Numbers 22 passage when he goes on his donkey to go curse the Israelites according to what King Balak had hired him for. And you remember there was the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword drawn in his hand. And the donkey kind of veered over to the side and crushed Balaam's foot and they had a little conversation and it goes on and on. But there's this sword being used in that passage. The sword is used, every young man remembers this passage. If you've never read through the Bible, you want to read the book of Judges. All right, It's got all kind of fantastic illustrations of real-life occurrences. And in the book of Judges, basically you have a time where the children of Israel would run away from God. God would send a deliverer and bring them back. And so Samson was one of those deliverers. But there was another deliverer by the name of Ehud. You know where I'm going on this one? So they're fighting against the king Eglon of uh, the king of Moab, and Ehud is sent on an assassin mission. And he goes into the king, says he's got a special message for him, goes into the chamber, and then Judges 3.21 says, And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into the belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull out the sword from the belly. And the dung came out. All right, maybe too much information, but it's in the Bible, so, you know, take it. (laughs) Hey, it's biblical, all right? But the idea is we see this sword being used in all kinds of passages. How about when David faced Goliath? David said to the Philistine, you come against me with what? Sword, with spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. How about in 1 Chronicles 21, 12, after David had sinned by having a census where he counted how many warriors he had or how many people he had and then uh, God was going to punish him for that and he said you either get three years of famine three months of devastation or three days of the sword of the Lord Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem and they the builders had were building with a sword strapped by their side in Psalm we read how in 712 if a man does not repent God will wet his sword he has bent and readied his bow in Psalm 44 6 for not Uh, In my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. In the context of judgment, Jeremiah 12, 12, again, it talks about how the sword of the Lord devours. Okay, that's some usages of the word sword in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, your next blank there, in the New Testament, it's used a number of times. And here I'm talking about specifically the word makaira. The short sword here is used 29 times. It's used by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 10, 34, When he said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And in the context, he's talking about making a division between the believer and the unbeliever. A believer and an unbeliever are not united, but they will be divided. And what they will be divided on is the word of God, which is a sword to to declare who it is that knows Christ through the gospel and who it is that doesn't. 
Uh, it's used again by Christ even in the, the time when he was abducted in the garden of Gethsemane where Peter pulled, uh, reached into the, the servant, remember, and took out his sword and cut out Malchus's ear. And then Jesus then said to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. This same word, Machaira, is used of King Herod, one of the Tetrarch, one of King Herod's four uh, sons who ruled after King Herod the Great died in Acts 12 too. It says that he killed James, the brother of John, with the Machaira, with the sword. In Romans, we read about in Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The word Machaira. In Romans 13, it's a passage about the government that rules over us, that God says, for he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Maybe the most famous passage in the Bible for the word sword is Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit joints and marrow. Each one of those places, we understand that there's the, the word sword as a physical weapon. The word sword is also used as a spiritual weapon, and it is used to defeat the enemies of God, and it is also used to defeat the attacks of the devil. The, the word sword is used both to protect God's people and to prevent them from further sin. The word sword is used in the context of separating believers from unbelievers, in the context of Christian citizens submitting to, the, to human government, and in the context of spiritual surgery. The word sword is, is a word that is both dangerous and necessary for God to carry out his plan with you. The sword is to both be feared and revered in its use to protect us from the enemy and even to fillet us open before the Lord. Without the sword, there's really no change in your life. Without the sword, you're just a block of wood. But when the Holy Spirit uses the Machaira of God, and he uses the specificity of the word of God in your life, you cannot be the same. You will be being carved into the image of Christ. And God uses the sword of the Spirit to cut away the fat, to remove the sin of disease, and to create in you a clean heart. And after you've been changed by the sword, you must be learning how to wield the sword for the battles that we face. And so let's move on if we can, and we need to understand the second heading, the Holy Spirit and the sword for the source of the word of God in verse 17 is the sword of the spirit, right? We're talking about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So there's a connection here between the Holy Spirit and the word of God. And so let's talk about that in this point, if we can. Number A, uh, the spirit's role in giving the sword. Now, I told you earlier that man manufactures the physical sword, but it is God who manufactures the spiritual sword. And the Holy Spirit has a vital role in giving us this powerful book, the Bible. In fact, the Scottish pastor and writer Thomas Guthrie said, quote, the Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons, a laboratory of infallible medicines, a mine of exhaustless wealth. It is a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, and a medicine for every malady. It is a balm for every wound. Rob us of the Bible, and our sky has lost its sun. So in other words, in battle, without having a sword, you have no hope of a future or of a tomorrow. From an unknown source comes this tribute to Scripture, there are words written by kings 
emperors, by princes, poets, by sages, by philosophers, by fishermen, by statesmen, by men learned in the wisdom of Egypt, educated in the schools of Babylon, and trained in the feet of the rabbis of Jerusalem. It was written by men in exile in the desert, in shepherd's tents, in green pastures, and beside still waters. Among its authors, we find a tax collector, a herdsman, a gatherer of sycamore fruit. We find a rich man, poor man, statesmen, preachers, captains, legislators, judges, and exiles. The Bible is a library full of history, genealogy, ethnology, law, ethics, prophecy, poetry, eloquence, medicine, sanitary science, political economy, and perfect rules for personal and social life. And behind... Every word, there is the divine author, God himself. This is the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, and it is given to us from God in the power of the Spirit. In fact, 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And there's a reference there. The idea and understanding is we have the Word of God as a gift to us and brought to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, we learn that in Acts 1.16, we read, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. In other words, the reference is given here by the author Luke in the Acts 116 passage that it was the Holy Spirit who spoke to David years ago. It's the Holy Spirit who's given us the word today about what's happening here in Christ being the son of David. In fact, David himself said in 2 Samuel 23, 2, the Spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. The Holy Spirit is alive and well in the Old Testament. And according to David, it was the Spirit of the Lord that spoke to him and gave him his word on his tongue. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so we understand again, it's the Spirit of God giving us the Word of God. And without the Spirit of God, there would be no Word of God. It is the source of the scriptures that we have. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Another possible reference there is that the New Testament canon is being completed. It's understand that it was the paraclete, the Holy Spirit that would come alongside believers, continuing to give them this, the, the word of God and so that they could have a complete and a final uh, weapon to be used in holy warfare. Paul ends in his well-known book, Moody Handbook of Theology, writes this about the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. He says, the Holy Spirit helped writers remember the facts of Christ's teaching. The Holy Spirit enabled them to understand theologically what they were writing, and the Holy Spirit guaranteed the completion of the entire New Testament. And so we understand that the reason that you have this weapon the Word of God, is because it is the sword of the Spirit. It is His sword. He's simply offering it to you once you are in Christ. And so secondly, I want to say here is that the Spirit's role is not only in giving us the Word of God, but in us receiving the sword. The the Spirit of God does not work outside of the Word of God. And the Word of God, in some ways, is powerless, just black and white print on a page, without the Spirit of God convicting our hearts and changing our lives and helping us understand what it is that the Bible's saying. 
And so the two work hand in hand, the Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. And so in us receiving that, I'm talking here about the, the idea of conversion. I'm talking about the conviction of sin. I'm talking about that's a work of the Holy Spirit, according to what Christ taught us in John 16, verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, reference to the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, you understand, you used to be in the world. Right Before you were a Christian, you were in the dominion of darkness. And it was while you were in the world that God the Father sent the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin and to open up your heart that you would realize that you are a sinner on your way to hell. And yet God, in his love for you, sent Christ to die on a cross and that he was raised from the dead that you could be saved. This all happens. This all becomes weighing on your conscience because of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, that would baptize you many days from now. He says, John baptized you with water, but the Holy Spirit you're, gonna, you're about to receive. And there's an understanding that the Christian must have, if you will, the sword of the Spirit come to convict you of your sins so that you can receive new life. It's the same thing that Paul says already here in Ephesians chapter 2. Here in Ephesians 2 verse 22, it says, in him, that is, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit building us together in love, in unity, brick by brick, as a living temple, both collectively as the church and individually as the temple of God, that you are being built up in Christ. That's all a work of the Holy Spirit. That's how you receive the Word. Now let me tell you how this took place in the lives of some well-known Christians throughout church history. Let's look at how the Spirit of God used the Word of God to convict a heart and to bring new life. Are you ready? How about St. Augustine, the great theologian who lived between 354 and 430 AD? It was the summer of 386 where Augustine, native of North Africa and professor of rhetoric at Milan, sat weeping in the garden of his friend Olypius. And he was almost persuaded to begin a new life, but he lacked the final resolution to break with the old. And if you know anything about Augustine, he's talking about sexual sin. He could not break this one habit in his life, and he's considering coming to God, but he lacks one thing. And on that particular day, as he's reading, he hears a child singing a phrase in Latin, and translated it says, take up and read. Take up and read. And Augustine thought to himself that these were strange words indeed for a child to be singing at play. And so he took it and it must be from the providence of God. And so he picked up a scroll and he began to read and his eyes fell on this passage that the Holy Spirit used to bring life to Augustine. It's Romans 13, 13 and 14. He read, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. As Augustine read those two verses, he says, no further would I read nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. The Word of God 
cutting away sin in his life, convicting him of the exact thing he needed to be convicted of and giving him new life. That's the testimony of Augustine. Listen to the testimony of Martin Luther, well-known reformer from 1483 to 1546. As a Catholic monk, Luther could not find assurance that his sins were forgiven despite all of his efforts at self-denial, trying to live a righteous life. And he was tormented by a grave sense of his sinfulness. But his search came to an end on one day when he was studying in the heated room in the tower of the black cloister in Wittenberg, reading the epistle of Paul to the Romans. He came across this one verse, Romans 1.17, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. About his conversion, Luther later wrote, quote, night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it began to me, it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. The Holy Spirit used one word of the Bible on one occasion to bring salvation to Martin Luther. How about the testimony of Jonathan Edwards, preacher of the Great Awakening from 1703 to 1758? Edwards was the son of a minister, and he was taught the gospel from infancy. As a boy, however, he had a great dread of the sovereignty of God. Later, he spoke of his conversion at the moment that he came to not only to be at peace with this doctrine, but to draw immense comfort from it. He said, the first instance that I remember of that sword of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading these words. And he quotes, first, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, which says, to the king of the ages immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Edward says, quote, as I read the words, there came into my soul, as was as it were diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I'd ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be as it were swallowed up in him forever. I kept saying, and it is where singing over these words of Scripture to myself and went to pray to God that I might enjoy Him and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do with a new sort of affection. How about the, the conversion of Charles Haddon Spurgeon? Have you heard how the Prince of Preachers was converted in 1850? At age 16, Spurgeon was on his way to an appointment when a blizzard forced him into a primitive Methodist chapel. The regular preacher was unable to make it to the meeting because of the storm, so in his absence, a simple, a simple poor church member stepped into the pulpit to, pre- to preach as best he could. He read his text, Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved, 
all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. With only a dozen or so in attendance, the man identified young Spurgeon as a stranger, and so he singled him out with the challenge, young man, look to Jesus and be saved. Years later, Spurgeon wrote, quote, there and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them the precious blood of Christ. What are we talking about? The Spirit of God, working in concert with the Word of God to bring those who are the elect of God into salvation. It must be the Spirit of God with the Word of God. Let me ask you this morning, what Word of God did the Holy Spirit use to convert you? I can remember well as an eight-year-old boy, my father would read the scripture to me every night, and one night he read to me Romans 6, 23, and it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In that very evening, as my dad began to explain what it meant to deserve God's judgment, and at the same time that God had given a gift of grace in Jesus Christ, for the first time in my life, I saw the gospel. I understood the necessity of of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It was in that moment that God saved me because of his glorious grace in Christ, read to me through the word of God. And my question to you is, when did you become a Christian? When did God use the sword of the spirit, that is the word of God, to pinpoint things in your life that you must be convicted of, namely sin? And when did he breathe into your life new life of the hope of the helmet of salvation? For he does so using the sword of the Spirit. Now that you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there, but he continues, see in your outline, the Spirit's role in us understanding the sword. And so as we continue to grow as Christians, we grow into a greater understanding. And here I'm talking about the doctrine of illumination. Illumination can be defined as the ministry of the Holy Spirit in which he enables men, those who are in a right relationship with him, to understand and comprehend truth already revealed as recorded in the Bible. And so there's the doctrine of illumination here that helps us understand the Word of God. But I want to move on to D. The next one here is the Spirit's role of using the sword. So first we got to understand it, but I'm going to move on to D, the Spirit's role now in us using the sword. Like any weapon, you must use the sword in the way that it was intended to be used. This means you cannot take verses out of context. This means that you must understand specific words of the Bible that are inspired by God to use them for specific attacks in your life. And what I'm talking about is Ephesians 6.17 here, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's interesting that Paul does not use the Greek word that you would think he would use in this passage, the more common word, the word that most of you know, and it's the word logos. And logos is a, is a reference to the general Word of God. It's a reference to the whole inspired book of the Bible is the Word of God. But it sometimes has this connotation of a general sense of the Word of God. That's not the word he uses. Instead, he uses the word rhema. Rhema is an individual emphasis of the spoken word or statements in specific situations. Now, I have a prop to help me that I didn't pull out earlier because I was going to wait till you fell asleep, all right? But now that you guys are still with me, I wanted to show you 
the sword, all right? So this is a replica of the Roman sword, again, the machaira, and this is the sword here, two feet long, two inches thick, and the idea is this is what would be used in hand-to-hand combat. Who's ready to go with me, toe-to-toe? Anybody? All right. So here's the idea of the word rhema. Think again, we sword, you got that picture down, and rhema being a specific spoken word of God. And here's the deal. You don't want to have a broadsword in battle. Again, I told you it's too cumbersome. But you want to have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. You want to have rhema, which is a specific verse of Scripture. It's a specific application to a word or to a phrase that you can both defend when Satan comes against you with a fiery dart. The sword is used to defend and to block the blows of the evil one. But at the same time, the sword is used to strike where you insert and thrust the sword. And so this is the kind of sword that we're talking about. I want you to think about that picture as we continue this little part right here because what we're talking about is the word rhema. You must have a specific application to the word of God. So turn with me to Matthew 4, and you'll see this best illustrated here in Matthew 4. And we're talking about the spiritual battle between Satan and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, we see exactly what happens here is that Satan comes after Jesus in the most horrid of ways. And after Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, we see in verse 3, and the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Well, you know what happens next. Jesus quotes here Deuteronomy 8.3, but he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is Jesus doing? He's not using the broadsword of the Lagos in a general sense. He's using a specific Machaira sword of the Rhema, the word of God, and he's going toe-to-toe with the devil with exactly the need of the moment for the temptation that Satan brought. Satan said, turn this rock into a, to bread and you can eat. And Jesus immediately went in for the kill and said, no, 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 no. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God, right? Every word that comes out of, of every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice, secondly, Satan now thinks he's getting wise, and he begins to think maybe he'll tempt him using Scripture for Scripture. So the devil took him to the holy city, verse 5, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will come and his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Well, guess what? Satan is now quoting from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And so Satan's thinking, all right, we'll go, we'll go scripture with scripture, but there's only one problem. Satan is taking his scripture out of context. And so in that moment, Jesus immediately comes back with another Machaira sword strike in Deuteronomy 6.16, and he quotes here in Matthew 4.7, uh, 7, he's quoting again Deuteronomy 6.16, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan's wanting to test him. Jesus says, no, you're taking that out of context. We're to never test God. We shall not put him to the test. And Satan tried one last time. If you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus quotes here, uh, Deuteronomy 6.13, and he says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Notice, Jesus did not quote some random verse. Jesus has not picked just some random verse out of the Old Testament in order to fight off Satan's blows. No, Jesus doesn't refer here to the Logos, but to the Rhema specifically. Jesus was a chapter and verse man. 
He knew where to go in the Bible to defeat the evil one. And if you want to have victory in your life, you must know the Word of God. Specific verses for specific challenges in your life. The other places in the New Testament where rhema is used is in John 15, 7. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's used again in, let me just skip down to Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Specific word at a specific moment, a rhema that brings you to salvation. It's used by the water of the word that we referenced earlier in Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify her. Talking about Christ in the church to be an example for a husband and a wife, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the rhema, a specific word of God. And so let me ask you this morning, church, do you have a specific sword in mind, a specific verse, there we go, a specific verse in mind for every temptation that you face? What do you do, young man, when you're struggling with lust? Are you able to quote a specific verse of scripture in that moment, Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a virgin. What do you do, ladies, when you struggle with worry? Are you in that moment able to say, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, I will submit my request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. What do you do, dads, when you're struggling with anger and you're about to get upset? Are you able to go to the Machaira and say, let me put off all bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor and slander? Instead, let me speak tenderly with kindness, forgiving one another as God has forgiven us in Christ. What do you do, child? When your parents ask you to do something you don't want to do, are you able to use the sword of the Spirit to help you? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. The idea is we must be a Makaira type of fighting church, right? We must be a chapter and verse type of church. We must have the specific rhema of the word of God in order to fight the battles that God has called us to. One last point here this morning, the word of God is our weapon. I've told you already there's only one word, sola scriptura. You need no other weapon. You need no other defense in the sense other than the armor God provides, and this being the only offensive weapon, but you guys got to know how to use it. You got to know how to use it. So let's just look at these quickly. A, we must read the word of God. You got to read it. If you're not reading the word of God, you'll never be able to overcome the enemy. We're called here in 1 Timothy to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, and I would say that's understood to be private as well. If we're going to read it publicly, certainly we need to be reading it privately. It was William Tyndale's vow that every English plowman and every boy that pulled a plow would one day be able to read and understand the Scripture. And because of his sacrifice through the providence of God, we now have an English Bible by which we could read. Are you a Bible reader? Secondly, or B, we must study the Word of God. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. Have you been trained in interpretation? Have you been trained in observation? Do you know how to use the Word of God in its context? Do you study God's Word? C, we must meditate on the Word of God. Here you could add meditate slash memorize. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. It was Thomas Cranmer 
the man of the word, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who wrote in the Book of Common Prayer, quote, Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such a wise way hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which is thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. I just wonder, do you meditate on the Word of God? Are you quick to be done and wrap up your quiet time and head off to work or into your day? Or do you ponder the majesty and the purity and the power of the Word of God? D, we must live out the Word of God. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We must preach the word of God. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. I'm tired of too many pastors and too many talk shows and too many Christians who run away from the word of God to come up with something clever to say on a Sunday or come up with something clever to say and how it relates to everyday life. We need to be preaching the word in season and out of season for only then can we rebuke and resort, uh, exhort and to uh, complete pa- with complete patience and understanding can we uh, do the work of the Spirit, right? Is we got to be having the Word of God. F, we must evangelize with the Word of God. Again, too many people, too many gimmicks about what evangelism is all about. It's simply about taking out the sword and getting to work. It's about letting the sword cut the unbeliever through conviction of sin and bring them to saving faith. Oh, how beautiful are the feet of those who hear the good news. It's the good news that we bring through the sword. It's not all the peripheral stuff that sometimes we get caught saying and get lost in. It was John Bunyan in his classic work, The Holy War, who wrote this great reminder about the character valiant for truth. Quote, I fought till my sword did cleave to my hand. And when they were joined together, as if a sword grew out of my arm, and when the blood ran through my fingers, then I fought with most courage. Are you tempted to drop the sword and to use some other ploy, some other method, some other weapon? Or is the sword essentially growing out of your arm the only weapon that you will use to call others to Christ? G, we must counsel with the Word of God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. At our church, we believe in the Bible being sufficient for all we need to teach and admonish one another in wisdom with the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon, must be used to accomplish victory. Let me give you an illustration here. It's a graphic illustration in the sense of very powerful from H.P. Barker, who points us to the need of us as Christians both knowing and applying biblical truth. Here's what he writes. And I looked out into the garden one day, and I saw three things. First, I saw a butterfly. The butterfly was beautiful, and it would alight on a flower, and then it would flutter to another flower, and then to another, only for a second or two, and it would sit, and it would move on. It would touch as many lovely blossoms as it could, but derived absolutely no benefit from it. Then I watched a little longer, and out of my window there came a botanist, 
and the botanist had a big notebook under his arm and a great big magnifying glass. And the botanist would lean over a certain flower and he would look for a long time and he would write notes in his notebook. And he was there for hours writing notes, closed them, stuck them under his arm, tucked his magnifying glass in his pocket, and he walked away. The third thing I noticed was a bee, just a little bee. But the bee would light on a flower and would sink down deep into the flower, and it would extract all the nectar and pollen it could carry. And it went in empty every time and came out full. I think maybe the question should be asked of us this morning, are you a butterfly floating and fleeting around the flowers of the Word of God, enjoying its beauty but never going deep? Are you a botanist who you go so deep and extract so much, that, uh, but it's only in the study form, right? You're only looking, 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 but never actually extracting. Or are you like the bee who goes in empty and you come out full, full of God's word, full of his power, full of the ability to fight off the enemy using the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God? Well, let me ask you a few questions here in closing, have you received the word of God by faith? Maybe you're here today and you don't know what I'm talking about, for you are fighting on the wrong side. You don't have a sword of the Spirit because you've never been saved by the word of God. And you must come to the word of God to see accurately the picture of Christ and his love for you and his sacrifice for sinners and his calling for you to repent and believe in him by faith. Maybe you need that rhema moment in your life where the Machaira of God is used to fillet your heart open and show you your need of Christ. Secondly, what other offensive weapon do you have for the battle? The answer should be none. So if you're looking to the world system, man's wisdom, secular psychology, the popular thoughts of our culture for a weapon against the evil one, you will lose every time. You only need the sword of the Spirit. Last, are you using the sword of the Spirit with precision. Do you know how to wield the sword of the Spirit in battle? Are you using it accurately to defeat the foe? Well, I'll give Martin Luther the last word from his great battle hymn of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Listen to the last two verses, verses three and four. He writes this, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word today and learn exactly what the sword of the Spirit is all about, the word of God, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so on this day, God, I pray that you would use your word, your precious, holy, sharp word that is like a fire. It's like a water that washes our sins away. It's both dangerous and it's both necessary for eternal life. And so on this day, I pray, God, that we would learn what it means to take up 
the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, these last two pieces of armor, so that we may be able to defend ourselves and to secure victory in Christ. Today, God, no matter what fight we're fighting, no matter what sins we're facing, help us to remember that there is no temptation that has seized us except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He would not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, but when we're tempted, he provides a way of escape so that we may endure it. God, help us today, this week, and through the rest of our lives to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and to use it accurately, both on the defensive and on the offensive, that we might fight the good fight of faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.